Welcome to the first episode of The Daily Discourse with Zach and Emily. I'm one of your hosts, Zach Courtney. And I'm your other host, Emily Eaton. So I might be biased, but we have a great show for you all today. First, we'll give our opening monologue followed by a brief discussion. Then we'll have a Q&A on what led us to where we currently stand politically. In future episodes, we will continue to have the monologue, but hope to bring on guests every week to discuss topics that we find interesting and important. As opinion columnists gone rogue, our goal is for our audience to think critically about the world we live in, even if that means disagreeing with us from time to time. I disagree with Zach frequently, so I can sympathize. This is my first time meeting Emily in person, but I can tell you that we will already disagree plenty. Today's monologues will tackle two of the more... Today's monologues will tackle two of the most prominent public policy issues the United States faces at the moment, healthcare and immigration. So, Zach, what are your thoughts on American healthcare today? Thank you, Emily. So, this podcast has been in the works for a few weeks, and I knew I wanted to have a weekly monologue in it tied to public policy. I knew it had to be on what I view as the single most common sense necessary piece of legislation, Medicare for all. This piece of legislation is pretty simple and straightforward. Take the already popular and expensive Medicare system, which is only offered to Americans over 65, and offer it to, well, everyone. Instead of countless different health insurance companies negotiating prices, we would have one. This is where the term single-payer health care comes from. Instead of individuals paying insurance premiums or paying at the point of service, all Americans would have access to health care, plain and simple. Just over a week ago, I had a column come out on marijuana. In my first paragraph, I said out one thing I am proud of is my instinct to ask why. I stand by that. Healthcare and Medicare for all strikes the same nerve with me. Why can't we, as the wealthiest nation in the world, guarantee all Americans to have access to healthcare without being buried in medical debt? Chuck Schumer and Bernie Sanders recently proposed lowering the Medicare eligibility age to 60. To that I say, great, but why not 55? Why not 45? Why not everyone? Someone on the right asked this ironically, but like, actually, why not expand Medicare to everyone? Before I get too deep into it, it's important to acknowledge that the United States is the only industrialized country on the planet without a universal healthcare system. To not offer something that every other country offers, like universal healthcare, there better be a good reason. So why doesn't the United States have universal healthcare? It can't be because of the extreme costs associated with it. In fact, countless studies have found the opposite to be true. Medicare for all would net save Americans money. Even a right-wing Koch-funded study showed that we would net save $2 trillion, yes, trillion with a T, dollars over 10 years. It can't be because it would raise taxes on the middle class. While technically this would be true, it was one of my biggest pet peeves of the 2020 Democratic presidential primary. Modest tax increases would replace the enormous burden that health insurance premiums and out-of-pocket costs currently put on middle-class families. It can't be that pharmaceutical companies wouldn't want to fund research on new drugs. The government already funds research for most drugs, including the COVID vaccine, only for the pharmaceutical companies to turn around and profit massively off of the taxpayer-funded research. It can't be that Medicare for All would hurt small businesses. In fact, I argue that Medicare for All would be the most pro-small business policy of the 21st century. Healthcare is expensive now for businesses, too, not just workers. Imagine the economic boom that would come if subsidized health insurance was no longer something an employer needed to offer. It can't be that Americans don't want it, because polling shows that isn't true either. Polling routinely shows Medicare for All has the support of about 70% of Americans. 
It can't be that it's socialism either because, well, that just isn't true. Socialism is when the workers own the means of production. Medicare for all is more in line with the social democracy line of thinking like that in Nordic countries in Europe, like Sweden, Finland, and Norway. They're all still very well capitalist countries, just with a strong social safety net. It can't be any of that. We as the wealthiest nation in the world can't guarantee all Americans access to health care without drowning in medical debt because money talks, plain and simple. In his 2020 presidential campaign, Joe Biden received more than $7 million in Big Pharma donations, more than three times the money that Donald Trump received from Big Pharma. In total, Big Pharma received a total of nearly $6 billion spent a total of nearly $6 billion on lobbying politicians from 1999 to 2017. Do we think Big Pharma is spending this amount of money with the intent that politicians shrink their profits? Probably not. Some might call this corruption, but they would probably call it a good investment. Over that same period, Americans per person spending on prescription drugs doubled even when adjusted for inflation. There is only one question that remains. Do we as Americans think that our fellow Americans deserve to have their cancer treatment, their prescription drugs, their annual physical, their eyeglasses, their dental checkup covered, regardless of their income, work, or class status? I definitely say yes. And Emily, this has been bugging me for the longest time, ever since I've really been interested in politics. It's not that hard. Just give everyone coverage to healthcare. It would save us money and more people would be covered. What say you? Well, first of all, I think it's really interesting that Biden received significantly more money from Big Pharma than Donald Trump did. Because I feel like Trump had this reputation of being a sellout for like a lot of his presidential campaign and career. Like this idea that you could buy him with money. But the idea that Biden, who's sort of been, you know, framed as this, you know, good old man, this staunch institution of the Democratic Party is actually being more heavily manipulated by Big Pharma is interesting to say the least right well and we'll talk to we'll talk about donald trump more um later on in this episode when we get to the q a but to be honest what i see that as is big farmer realized that they were largely the same on health care the only thing is that joe biden's maybe more competent at getting them what they want i mean i'm serious that donald trump in many ways was a standard republican and let's be honest a standard republican mitt romney created basically the same plan as Obamacare in Massachusetts when he was governor there. So it's not like... Wasn't it Utah? He was, he was governor of Massachusetts. He's senator what? of... Really? Mitt I Rom- didn't know that. <laughs> Mitt Romney was governor of Massachusetts, yes. So a very blue state that elected Mitt Romney as governor. And then he ended up creating Romney Care, which then turned into Obamacare, um, which was really just a giveaway for Big Pharma that yes, was modestly better than the system we had before, but still is nowhere near what we could do or anywhere near what countries like Canada or the rest of Europe is able to do. Yeah, I mean, I think you make some really awesome points. I feel like this is a, like, this is a conversation that I could talk for hours about because there are so many different facets that are involved, um, like how certain careers are more likely to pro- provide people with health care as opposed to others. Uh, but I think my big question would be is, what do you think the solution is then? Yeah, well, it's a little bit of a complex one. And although he kind of changed once he started running for New York City mayor, I think Andrew Yang had a very good idea when he was running for president. And he called it democracy dollars. And I might have touched on it on some columns, but I guess I'm not sure. 
But basically, the whole idea behind democracy dollars is you give every American that's at least 18 years old $100 that's called democracy dollars, and they can only spend it on giving it to politicians. So Citizens United, which was a Supreme Court case that basically said money is speech, so you can't regulate the amount of money that large corporations give to politicians, it kind of unleveled the playing field in the hands of corporations. So you're not going to overturn that. Realistically, you're not going to overturn that. Some Democrats don't want to acknowledge it, but I'll say it. But the way that you do, the way that you overcome it is by just flooding the system with money for everyone then, so that then the corporations don't have nearly as much power relative to the average person. Because if you give every single American that's 18 years old $100 money every, $100 every year to spend on political contributions, that's going to make corporations' money worth far less proportionally. Yeah, that's fair. So hypothetically speaking, it's 2024. You have your $100 in democracy dollars. Who are you giving it to? Well, I guess we'll have to see because I don't see an 82-year-old Bernie Sanders running for political office. I hope not. But it would have to be be someone in that line of thinking because, I mean, if I wrote my first monologue in it, you got to think that Medicare for all means quite a bit to me. So someone who... Someone who wants my $100 in democracy dollars, which will not be a thing in 2024, needs, needs to be in favor of universal single-payer health care. And so, as you can tell, obviously, throughout my entire monologue, the point was all of these reasons, I was negating all of these potential reasons for why not to have Medicare for all. And my point in doing that is a universal health care type system, not Medicare for all, but some type of universal system, is the standard in the world. We're the only country in the world, the only industrialized country in the world without a universal system. So for us to be the only one without it, we got to have a really good reason to not have it. And we just don't. So that was kind of what I was trying to go for with that is all of these BS reasons that people come with, come up with, they're just not good enough reasons for us to not have a universal health care system. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so um, I think that's about it. So we're going to take a quick break and come back for Emily's monologue. So, Emily, you are up next. What are your thoughts on immigration today? Well, Zach, as convoluted as healthcare policy can be, immigration law is a uniquely tricky beast. However, there's one area that is actually quite straightforward. Migrants have the right to seek asylum within one year of their arrival in the United States, regardless of their immigration status. So that means even if somebody enters illegally within a year, they can still apply for asylum. Refoulement or turning away migrants seeking asylum is not only illegal, it is a violation of international human rights law. Essentially, no country can legally turn away a person fleeing persecution at least not until they've determined whether or not said refugee meets the qualifications for asylum. I could spend a good hour going into those qualifications and the complicated nature of asylum law, but I will leave that alone for today, at least. And yet, at a news conference in Guatemala on June 8th, Vice President Kamala Harris stated, and I quote, Do not come. Do not come. The United States will continue to enforce our laws and secure our borders. If you come to our border, you will be turned back. Right now, the U.S. is operating on pretty shady legal ground by misapplying an old public health regulation, Title 42, to deny migrants entrance into the country. 
but that's tied to the COVID-19 pandemic. So as we come out of that and vaccine vaccinated populations increase, we're no longer going to be able to use that excuse. Either way, I don't know if I'm reading into things too much, but that seems to me to be very, very contrary to international human rights law. Then again, the United States has never been one to shy away from violating personal freedoms. We've got a long and ugly history in Central and South America. It might be too much to hope that this will be the administration to change that. Both the Biden and Obama administration solution to the migration crisis of Central America has been to pour aid into these countries under the guise of improving conditions to stem the flow of migrants. Vice President Harris told the New York Times that we must address the root causes that cause people to make the trek. So why hasn't it worked? When, the, when Kamala Harris and the Biden administration talk about the root causes of migration, they're looking at issues that are more or less solvable from a policy standpoint. We're talking about poverty, unemployment, economic stagnation, issues that theoretically we know how to handle. But Saskia Sassen, a sociologist at Columbia University who studies migration flows, has documented that migration actually has a positive correlation with economic growth. That means that as GDP increases, so does the flow of emigration. It seems counterintuitive, but it's actually because of the way in which the GDP is increasing. In the 1980s, Ronald Reagan showed the world that trickle-down economics, or the idea, essentially, that tax breaks for businesses and the wealthy will stimulate economic growth for all economic classes, is little more than a hoax. But nearly 40 years later, the United States continues to apply similar logic to its foreign aid. Money is funneled into corporations and anti-corruption efforts, i.e. the military and police, lining the pockets of the rich instead of filling the stomachs of the poor. The type of economic development that occurs in much of Central and South America is not wholesome, unionized, nine-to-five jobs paying a living wage. It's free market capitalism at both its finest and its absolute worst. The corporations that take root in these countries are often offshoots of American businesses looking to get cheap labor for their factories. GDP goes up, sure, but the average person isn't actually any better off than before Haynes or Chiquita or Audi showed up. What we see on paper is that, the is that the economy of these countries is improving. But what we don't see is that this export-based economic growth isn't actually improving the quality of life for the average person. And it's not intended to. Modernized economic development is actually a driver of migration, though many U.S. policymakers view it as a solution. When allowed to operate with limited taxation or government oversight, the general livelihood of Central and South Americans has little to gain from free market capitalism. As Pedro Garson argues for Slate, international development efforts have led to the hollowing out of national and traditional economies. U.S. officials are incredibly far removed from the reality of immigration in the United States. As somebody who has worked with asylum seekers from Central and South America, I firmly believe that Vice President Harris's words will make absolutely no difference and only serve to demonstrate her lack of foreign policy experience. It takes a level of fear and desperation to willingly pick up and leave your life, your family, your belongings behind, knowing that you may very well never be able to return. U.S. officials have put years of effort and millions of dollars into what they think will improve the conditions of Central and South America and stem the influx of migrants and refugees. What do we have to show for it? So essentially, uh, I think that Kamala Harris's comments um, at the press conference in Guatemala 
showed a lot of her naivete regarding the situation in South and Central America and this lack of connection that the U.S. government is actually able to have with these countries, uh, especially in their efforts to theoretically support them in a, in a time of need. Yeah, and I mean, while we agree, I think that what Kamala Harris said is bad, and I don't know if that was a very academic way to say that, <laughs> while what she said was bad, I don't really see it as quite the same way as you do. Yes, Harris is probably a moderate and more right-wing on immigration than she should be. But I don't see that as what she was saying there when she said, do not come, do not come, blah, blah, blah. What I see that as is she was pandering. She knows that she's put in charge of being the immigration czar or whatever you want to call it in the Biden administration, and she needs to pander to Republicans and right-wingers who are going to look at anything that she says when she goes to Guatemala and say, oh, now look at that socialist left-wing communist, Marxist, blah, 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 use all these buzzwords. That's what I see that as. And I saw that as her trying to avoid a catchy headline on Fox News as if she should care about some catchy headline at Fox News. So I don't know. First of all, just what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting take. But I would argue that further feeds into my argument about Kamala Harris not being the right person for this job. Because if you're going to a Central American country and you're going to pander to Republicans back in the United States. You know, I think that just shows that you're not well informed on the situation as it is, um, especially because socialism, communism, etc., they're buzzwords in a different way in a lot of these countries. And the United States has had such an impact on stamping out socialist and communist systems within Guatemala and other parts of Central America that, you know, I feel like they're continuing or she's continuing this pattern of suppression of the political beliefs of people in Central America, just doing so in a more subtle way. So instead of, you know, sending in our armies and our militaries and staging coups, instead we're funding their military and their police instead of actually supporting their economies and then going and being like, hey, don't come to America. Well, right. No, absolutely. And the neoliberal consensus continues, even though, I mean, I didn't vote for Biden, and I didn't vote for Harris in the primary, in the Democratic primary. But the thing is, the neoliberal consensus continues. You had Reagan, you had Clinton, you had uh, Bush, you had Obama. Um, to a certain extent, you still had Trump, even though Trump ruffled some feathers in the neoliberal wing. And now you have Biden. And they're all, in a lot of ways, I my line is they're the same soup, just reheated. And, I mean, I guess I don't know... <laughs> Well, I'm getting a laugh out of Emily. That's good. That's good. And I just don't know. I just don't know how do we how do we change that, Emily? How do we change the neoliberal consensus to just be no more? You know, I think that's that's really hard because I think in previous years I would have said, well, look at you know the democratic socialist countries that we have in Scandinavia. We've got Denmark, Finland, Sweden, etc., and see how well those systems work. But what we're seeing now in those countries is that as the um, as the makeup of, of those countries change and as they have a greater influx of refugees, the neoliberal side, the alt-right, is actually becoming stronger. So I feel like we're, we're in a bit of a pickle here because the systems that we know to function outside of a neoliberal stance and function well are now changing because, they're diver- because their country is diversifying. So I don't really know how we negotiate that that line between wanting to be a welcoming and open country and also wanting to have 
an economy that actually functions for the people. Yeah. And I mean, I guess I come from a family of teachers, so I look at it from an educational lens. And I think one of the ways, and I'm far from an expert on immigration, but one of the ways I think that you solve a lot of problems is through education. And I don't know about you, but I have taken one Latin American politics class in my life. We took it together. We did take it together. (laughs) And I learned a lot about um, Latin America and the ways that, to put it lightly, the United States screwed over all of Latin America. I did a lot of research specifically on Guatemala, so I'm a little bit more familiar with that and what Chiquita has done um, to Guatemala. But the thing is, we don't teach about that in high schools. We don't teach about that in middle schools. And why not? If we're talking about American history, it shouldn't, American history should not be, uh, we beat the Nazis, we freed the slaves and we put men on the moon and won the cold war. That should not be the extent of American history. And that is what the extent to I mean, it's obviously that's simplified, but that is what we do. And we don't look enough at the downsides of what we've done and the people that we've killed either directly or indirectly in other parts of the world and the poverty that we have created either directly or indirectly in other parts of the world. And the first step, uh, it's, it's the cliche line, the first step in solving a problem is recognizing there is one. And before we solve immigration and a lot of these complex issues, you might not say it's complex, but it's complex. No, it is complex. <laughs> the, the best way to solve these problems is for everyone to recognize there is one. And everyone doesn't recognize that there is a problem or what the problem is in immigration, I guess is what I would say. Yeah, I mean, I think education is definitely the first step. I struggle with that, though, because education is a long-term solution, and I'm impatient. (laughs) Well, right, which I think is a problem with our world, which is why education has been on the downturn. If we look at, say, the NFL, if the Vikings have two bad years or one really bad year, Mike Zimmer's gone. And that's just the nature of a lot of things. Or P.J. Fleck has one crummy year, even if he has over-exceeded expectations a few years, he's going to be done. And that's just the nature of us as Americans, that we're not willing to wait to see progress. Because education, it's not like we teach one class of juniors more about Latin American politics, and then boom, we're all done and we can clean up and we solved all problems related to immigration. So, yeah, I guess you're right on that. Nice sports analogies. (laughs) <laughs> no, and I mean, I think that that speaks to the the bureaucracy of education. I feel like we're we're getting a little off track here, but the fact that, you know, curriculum changes have to be approved, et cetera, et cetera, um, you know. So um, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to go into our last segment, which is going to be kind of a cool little Q&A, back-and-forth discussion between me and Emily. So stick around. All right, so we're back, and if you haven't caught it yet, there's a good chance that this poli- this podcast will center around politics, especially today. So I'm excited to maybe pick Emily's brain a little bit on politics, and she'll probably do the same for me. So my first question for Emily is the first one of every job interview. Tell me about yourself. Yeah, um, thanks, Zach. I told him explicitly that I dislike this question Uh, because in job interviews you have to do that awkward thing where you try and make yourself seem interesting and accomplished without getting too personal. 
but anyway, uh, so I just graduated from the University of Minnesota in May with a degree in global studies and a minor in Spanish. Uh, I'm currently pretty much hanging out in Minneapolis for the summer, writing columns for the daily, doing this podcast now. I'm also a research assistant at the U and I'll be moving to the Big Apple come August. So, you know, listen to me while you can. What about you, Zach? So you're currently living in the mini apple is? Yes. And you're going to move to the big apple. I've never heard that joke before. (laughs) (laughs) So a little bit about me. I am going to be entering my senior year at the University of Minnesota. I am a political science major. Um, I'm currently in the marching band. I'll be entering my third year in the marching band. I play trombone. I originally was a music education major, but I'm not talented enough to remain a music education major. Ouch. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and in my summer right now, I work for the Wilmer Parks and Rec. I'm from Wilmer, Minnesota, small town. You're not from Minnesota, so you probably don't even know where Wilmer is. No, I don't. I'm I'm from California. But I do, like, little kids baseball, little kids soccer. I ump baseball. I do that type of thing, and then I also coach alongside my dad I coach a travel soccer team in Wilmer and I'm the the association's goalie coach in Wilmer I played high school goalie um and in my free time I like reading an unhealthy amount of politics I watch the twins I am an NBA fan and I'm excited for the conference finals that are going on right now and I'm already lost Emily and I've maybe lost a few people just by talking (laughs) about sports because a lot of people don't care about sports but I yeah, don't care. you're making yourself sound like really wholesome. Like, yeah, I coach children and play trombone. Well, I I deserve to go to heaven just for having to deal with some watching a. Oh, watching, so now we're talking religion watching, too. Watching, watching kids. I thought we were just doing politics. <laughs> watching watching kids swing and miss at a baseball after a number of times. You deserve a ticket straight into heaven. Uh, yeah, I was. I've been a camp counselor in the past, and uh, kudos to you. Kudos to you. Thank you. So now we're going to go on to the second question because I don't like talking about myself too much, even though that is kind of what today is. So my second question for Emily is describe your politics. So I, you know, that's a, that's a really good question. I feel like I've sort of been in this political transition period uh, because of COVID and the Trump administration and a whole bunch of other things. Um, I've also spent a lot of time studying international politics in college. So that's kind of where my base comes from. I like to think I am an economic realist and a political idealist. That's what I, that's what I call myself. I have a lot of things that I wish would happen, you know, perfect world. We could be some kind of utopia where everyone has a bed to sleep in and healthcare and food to eat and a job that they love. I realize that's not going to happen. But I'm also all for, you know, economic spending in a way that is uh, sustainable and really make sure that the government works for the people, if that makes sense. I'm a registered independent. Yeah, so you're an idealist, but you think that the government should work for the people. Well, yeah. You're a realist, but you think the government should work for the people. Okay, so you're not, you're not actually, you're not actually <laughs> oh, a realist. I think the government should do what it, was, what it was set up to do. Actually, that's a lie. I don't think the government should do what it was set up to do. I think the government should do what the Constitution theoretically says. Because we all know it was not set up to work for the people. I mean, when it was set up, black people were three fifths of a person. So the constitution actually they wrote that in there. Constitution wasn't great. Well, that's what I said. You know, you're not fine. Okay. So I'll describe my politics then. (laughs) 
So I wrote these questions, so I kind of had a clue of what I was going to say to answer them. So I'm a little bit on the upper edge from Emily. So if you think I sound more intelligent than her, I probably am. You're but wrong. I probably am, but it's also because I was able to be a little bit more prepared. <laughs> <laughs> so a little bit about my politics. I would call myself a social democrat, which is not the same thing, contrary to popular belief, as a democratic socialist. Social democrat is a little bit to the right. These sound like buzzwords. A social democrat is a little bit to the right of a democratic socialist. So I believe in capitalism, but also that we should have a strong social safety net. So a, a word that I always like to bring up is like a meritocracy. So a meritocracy is, I actually pulled up the definition so that we can talk about it. Meritocracy is a political system in which economic goods and or political power are vested in individual people based on the basis of talent, effort, and achievement rather than wealth or social class. See, but talent, effort, and achievement are inherently tied to wealth and social class. You can't separate them. Well, so in our current system, that's true. But that's kind of the point of a meritocracy is that you try to create systems where everyone has an equal shot, which obviously has to do with Funding, I mean, things that we're going to talk about in a little bit are like funding universal pre-K, and that's a good way to ensure everyone has a fair shot, or funding, actually fully funding public education so everyone has a good shot, and trying to get everyone to at least community college so everyone has a fair shot. Oh, man, and an paying people And paying people a fair wage so everyone has a fair shot. People can do this in Europe. We can do it here. So then the next question for you is, what inspired your interest in politics? You know, I feel like my interest in politics comes from a bit of an irregular place. Uh, I think my parents, like, forced me to watch, like, the news and listen to NPR from the time I was four. Uh, I feel like with most families, you know, politics are sort of forbidden. People don't talk about them. That's, like, the only dinnertime conversation in my house. So I would, I would argue that my interest in politics was not inspired by any one thing, uh, but I grew up not knowing that you could not be interested in politics. Uh, so, you know, here we are. <laughs> what about you? To be completely honest, I kind of wish it was that way, that it wasn't an option to not be interested in politics. Because regardless of if you're a political science or a global studies major or not, you're still a citizen who has the right to vote. So I think that politics are kind of automatically important for everyone. That's a conversation for another day. So what inspired my interest in politics? A lot of things. So one of them is the Trump administration. And I'm not going to get, it's one of my next questions is talking about the Trump presidency. But regardless of what you think about Trump, you have to admit that he's interesting. And he's something, he's someone that, okay, she's giving me the frown. <laughs> but, but regardless of what you think of him, He's interesting, and he's someone that we need to look at. And he's someone that, as a political science major, we need to really think critically about how did this happen? And is this good? Is this bad? What should this mean for the future of politics? What will this mean for the future of politics? So Trump did inspire me. I'm, I'm not going to act like I'm going to take that out of context. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that I'm a fan of Trump, but I'm going to say that he inspired me because he's just such an interesting person and it showed that we are just kind of at an odd state in politics. Another thing that interested me in politics, I don't know if you've seen HBO's show, The Newsroom. No. Well, you need to watch it. And I took my senior year of high school, I took a PSEO course in it was something For those like, of you who don't know, PSEO is when you take college courses while you're still in high school. 
post post secondary enrollment option. It's a Minnesota thing. Yeah. <laughs> um. So I took a PSEO course in like something. It was called like American Government or something at Ridgewater College in Wilmer, which is the community college in my hometown. And we watched a monologue uh, from the show, The Newsroom. It was the opening cold open for the show, The Newsroom, which is kind of about an idealist world of what media should look like. And I really loved it. You should watch it as a journalist. You should watch it. And um, the opening monologue was on the, this potential journalist or future journalist in this fictional world asked um, the the TV anchor, why is America the greatest country in the world? And a few of the people answered, and they gave, you know, some very cliche answers that people always give for why America is the greatest country in the world. And then he ended up responding that America is not the greatest country in the world. And whether you agree with that or not. Oh, I've seen that. I've seen that, like, clip, I think. you got to watch the whole show, though, because the whole show is is wonderful. And it's along the same line, and Aaron Sorkin wrote it, and Aaron Sorkin did a good job. And... Regardless of what you think, good job, Aaron Sorkin. Regardless of what you think about Aaron Sorkin and the monologue, and if you think America is the greatest country in the world or not, I think it opens up a lot of good conversation that about how we need to think about politics and how we need to think about America in general. And that really opened up my eyes, and I really started caring more about politics ever since then. That was probably when I was. 17 or 18 and now i'm a big boy i'm 21 that was deeply inspiring meanwhile i told my kindergarten teacher that i wanted to be the president wow and that i was going to end the iraq war yeah nice. um yeah we might st- we, we could still be in the iraq war when you're 35 so maybe you could still do that oh i would you could not pay me to run for president they the would pay they would pay terrible. if you won if you won president they would pay you that is how that works i but you couldn't pay me to run Okay. I wouldn't do it. So my next question, and I feel like you can tell a lot about a person from their answer to this question. What are your thoughts on the Obama presidency? You know, I think the corporate Democrats really liked him. Um, well, first of all, first and foremost, I think that it was obviously high time that we had a president who was not a white man. Um, so that in and of itself, I feel like often puts Obama's presidency on a pedestal for both good and bad reasons, um, some of which I think are much more valid than others. I think at the end of the day, he was a fine president. I think he could have gotten more done than he did, um, but you know, that had a lot to do more with like the Senate and the House than him, and he's still a war criminal. So there's that. So. I'm going to now answer my own question. Thank you, Emily. You're welcome. Um, so I've thought about this one, and I feel like the default answer for a lot of people is like, you know, Obama was a good president. But that's also like, I don't know. He, he came after George W. Bush, who until January 6th of this year, I would say was the worst president of my lifetime. As bad as you would say Trump was through his four years. Haven't we only lived through like three presidents? We were alive for a few months of Clinton, a few years of Clinton. Okay. But I would say... <laughs> Your pickings are not great. <laughs> well, well, no, but I'm saying that a lot of people talk about how horrible Trump is. Until January 6th, I had Bush pegged as worse than Trump. Interesting. He got us into wars and he lied about it. Trump didn't do that. 
No, but Trump was just dumb. And the oh, whole... Oh, Bush was, Bush was truly an okay, intellect okay, Jamal, I, you're right. <laughs> you know what? Okay, that's fair. Um, you know, I really liked Jeb for a little while there. No, I'm kidding. I think... I think the only reason that Trump comes out as worse than Bush is when you look at how they treated women. I mean, okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking more, I mean, I'm not yeah, going to belittle you know. it, but I'm thinking more of like a policy type of. That's fair. That's fair. Well, so we all know what Trump's policy towards women was. So uh, talking about Obama's presidency, um, Let's I feel Michelle like. instead. <laughs> I feel like one of the reasons that people talk about him as being so great is because he came after Bush, who in my eyes was a horrible president and whatever, um, left Obama with the Great Recession and all of that and left us with wars. And so my problem with the Obama presidency is I was looking back because obviously I was like eight, nine years old when he became president. I think I was eight, yeah. Looking back at that... um, people had a right to be excited that we have this progressive, seemingly progressive, black, young, new president who's, we we currently are in the Great Recession and everyone's losing their jobs and pay has been stagnant, wages have been stagnant, and we're in these wars and, and whatnot. And we have all these problems with health care and Obama's going to come in and he's going to fix them. And we get this super majority. We had 60 Democrats in the Senate and we had whatever, a large majority, the Democrats had a large majority in the House, and we're going to change all these things. And then Obama came in and not only did not end the Iraq war, he got us into more wars. He not only didn't pass the public option that he wanted, he made some modest improvements to the health care system, which also acted as large giveaways to the health insurance companies. And not only did he not make modest improvements to wages, he actually never passed an increase to the minimum wage in his eight years as president. Ouch. So people talk about Obama was a great president or Obama was a good president. I just don't see what they're talking about because he acted as a moderate Republican to a very centrist Joe Manchin-like Democrat. And that's just not what the moment called for. And we had the Great Recession and all these people losing their jobs. And we're in these wars. And then we get all excited about this new young progressive coming into office. And he just didn't really meet the moment. It's, that's my feeling on Obama. And I could go on for a while about other things that he did wrong. Like, I mean, I've been hoping to write a column for a while on it, but I haven't really had the opportunity on, like, Edward Snowden and the NSA. Oh, I and forgot about him. And, and the <laughs> NSA and how... We kind of violated our constitution, or Obama kind of violated our constitutional rights, and now we're not allowed to talk about how Edward Snowden should be a free man walking around in America, but he's, we think he's somewhere in Russia. Um, and I could go on about Obama, but that is the biggest thing. It's just he didn't meet the moment, and he was fine, but he could have been better. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really interesting because I think for me, it's, I didn't realize that Obama wasn't all of that until probably when I came to college. Like, I think because I was raised in such, like, like a Democratic household, but not necessarily a leftist household, just, like, very institutional, this is what Democrats believe. Um, I didn't really feel like a Democratic candidate could be bad. 
for a long time. Um, but looking back, I do think one of the reasons why people think Obama's presidency was so good was the grassroots aspect of his election. He was one of the first modern presidents to have a serious grassroots influence on his actual election and how he got into office, um, which is something that Elizabeth Warren then tried and failed to replicate. So whether or not he actually created um, or showed that you can get elected in a way that isn't necessarily um, through like systems and institutions is kind of, who knows, not entirely sure. But I do think that's important to point out that the way he came into office beyond his identity as a black man was sort of revolutionary. That's fair. And, um, yeah, I guess I'm not going to add anything to that. You kind of said everything. But I'm going to ask you the next question because I feel like you wrote all these questions and had time to think, and now I'm having to answer them first and, like, think on my feet. So to follow that up, what are your thoughts on the Trump presidency? So to put it lightly, Trump was different than every other president before him. You are much kinder than I am. So that's that's the biggest thing is that Trump was different, and we need to look at why. Why does this reality TV star who has had multiple wives and used to be pro-choice get elected as a Republican with major evangelical support and some support from the working class, actually a good amount of support from the working class. And I actually look at it as a downfall of Democrats. It's not that it's Americans, maybe they screwed up in electing Trump, but also we got to look at why didn't they vote for the Democrats? And I mean, Probably the reason they didn't vote for the Democrats is they're like, well, Obama looked really great, and then he kind of failed to meet the point. So let's see what this other guy from the outside can do. And Trump didn't do that, to put it lightly again. And the biggest thing about Trump is I see him as the type of person who kind of, I don't know the right way to put this, but he preyed on the hopes of working Americans who just wanted someone to help them out. And he enriched himself while acting like he was going to help Americans. And he didn't. And he lied. And he lied. And he lied. And I said it earlier, but before January 6th, I didn't have Donald Trump pegged as the worst president of my lifetime. I had that as George W. Bush. Trump didn't get us into a war. We have to give him at least some credit for that. Yeah, that's fair. But he lied and he lied and he lied and he tore us apart to the point where now, I mean, Biden can't get anything done without begging for Joe Manchin to pass some modest reconciliation bill. And that's that's where we're at right now. And it's basically you're either a Trump person who hangs a MAGA flag on your wall or you're a Democrat, and there's no in-between. And it's turned into this kind of binary choice with Trump where you're either for him or you're against him. And, I mean, I could go on and on, but the January 6th, and how he lied and he lied and he lied and he preyed on all of these people and they believed him that there was evidence that he was going to become president when that's just not true. I mean, this is an opinions podcast, but I'm calling balls and strikes. He didn't win the election. And the sports metaphors. (laughs) Well, calling balls and strikes is, I mean. I've never heard that before. Whatever. (laughs) It's trying to be objective is what calling balls and strikes okay, means, fair. Emily. So well, I got I got the gist. <laughs> Thanks though. Sorry, continue. But 
January 6th was just a clear moment that all that he was there for was to keep lying and to keep lying and to keep dividing us and to keep profiting off of it. And now he's gone and we're still divided and we get stuck with this old white guy who's a moderate and isn't going to do very much. And it worries me that we're going to end up with a Trump-like figure again in four years if Biden doesn't get more done. See, I, I agree that Trump's pre- presidency was... I spent four very angry years, I'll say that. But I was not surprised that he got elected, at least in retrospect. And that's because of Jerry Falwell, the head of like Liberty University, big evangelical church guy, who had actually originally agreed to endorse Ted Cruz in the primary and then swapped over and endorsed Donald Trump. And that was like literally like you can point to the time when Trump began to rise in the ratings and when Jerry Falwell publicly endorsed him. And now there's all this stuff going down with Jerry Falwell and his son. And there's a really good podcast called In God We Lust that you should listen to. That's all about it, all about the Falwell family. Um, But so looking back retrospectively, I don't think it's that surprising that he got elected. I strongly disliked his presidency mainly because I cannot listen to the man speak. Like, he opens his mouth, and I want to vomit. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, that is very intolerant of me. Um, but, you know, the eloquence, not there. That is one thing I do really like about Biden, is I genuinely enjoy listening to some of his speeches. I feel like he, you know, puts together complete sentences. Joe Biden has competent speechwriters. We can't act like Joe Biden. You know, Trump just didn't use speechwriters. He would just go up there with note cards and just, like, go off. Like, he didn't even have people write him speeches half the time. Which, you know, I will say, he lowered the price of prescription drugs. I think that was a good thing. That's all. That's about all Trump did that I liked. He didn't get us into a war. Yeah, but he didn't get us out of a war any either, so. I guess. And my other thing with Trump that we didn't even mention is his failure relative to COVID, how we just wanted to ignore it, and how we turned, I mean, I talk about divide, 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 and how that's what he did. He turned a stinking mask and getting a vaccine into something worth being divided over. And it turned into, you're either a Democrat or you don't wear your mask. And if you look at the numbers and in different areas of the country, it followed very closely with what percent voted for Biden, what percent voted for Trump, and whether you got the vaccine, plan to get the vaccine, wear a mask, those types of things. And for what? And now hundreds of thousands of Americans are dead. And I don't know. And that's all that I have. And the other thing, we talk about divide, divide, divide. He talks about we, we've had stagnant wages and we've had stagnant wages. We had stagnant wages. And we could talk about all of these things that that's because. But nope, it's because of these brown people. That's the reason that your wages haven't yeah. gone up. And if we just sent them back... If we just built the wall, your wages would go up. And it's their fault. Don't look at me and these billionaires and their greed. It's their fault. It's those brown people's fault that your wages haven't gone up. And that's, I mean, he did it in a more divisive way than anyone else has been able to do it, which, I mean, you can talk about all the policy agreements that you disagree with, just Republicans in general, but Trump just had a more divisive way of going about it. And, I mean, I talk about, the two P's are my biggest problems, biggest issues in the world of politics. 
you got polarization, and you got poverty. I mean, we can okay. talk about poverty and all the ways you fix it. One of the ways. What about you polar bears? Polar climate bears. Change. Climate change doesn't fit well into the two P's, does polar it? Polar bears. Make it three. Okay, we can <laughs> we can talk about that. Okay. But uh, poverty, and we can talk about that, and how we need to get people out of poverty. But polarization, and just being able to you know talk to your neighbor and not hate each other. I mean, it sounds basic, but that's kind of an important thing that we need to fix that Trump only made worse. And then I'm going to ask another question because I didn't put it on here because I wanted you to have to think about it. So you are now the 46th president of, wait. Did you pay me? I said said $400,000 a year, yes. I don't think that's enough for that job. (laughs) Well, we can get into that too. That's like how much Joan Gable makes a year. Yeah. Yeah. So, but you are now president of the United States, and you get to enact automatically three policies. Oh. And what are those three policies going to be? Okay, number one. um, First policy, we're ending line three, the construction of the pipeline in northern Minnesota. I think that's going to be a huge turning point. And as to whether or not we are actually able to become a country that runs on green energy. And if we build this pipeline, we are only reinforcing our reliance on oil. So stopping that pipeline, it might seem like a small thing. I think the impact would be huge. It also really factors into issues of like tribal sovereignty and the government actually working in tandem with indigenous nations as opposed to steamrolling them like we have for hundreds of years of history. So here's where I'm going to stop you right there. Hopefully you're at the end of that thought kind of is climate change is a big issue. Yes. But the thing where I disagree and hopefully you respect me here is relative to climate change is that just stopping the line three pipeline. That's great. And that'll help. But we need to think. And I have this issue with a lot of progressives is that we need to think deeper about the problem of climate change and how we fix it. It's not by just stopping one pipeline. It's about I mean, we cha- already stopped Keystone XL. Right. But it's not about just changing one thing because there will be more rich billionaires that could come in. It's about stopping people from lying about the reality that climate change exists. And it's about bolstering journalism and about stopping people, singular people, from being able to become that popular. And it's about uh, trying to curb polarization so that people are actually able to rationally hear other people's opinions because without those things you don't actually have systemic i always talk about the systems you need the systemic change to actually fix things sorry are you a liberal arts student yes but that's the (laughs) that's the thing is that we don't change things by just putting one band-aid over you got to actually heal it get it i don't think we have time i don't think we have time for healing i feel like you're talking long term. But I think the issue is when it comes to climate change, everybody is talking long term. Everybody's like, oh, in 30 years, we'll be carbon neutral. In 15 years, this will happen. In 50 years, the state will run on solar power, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What about tomorrow? You know, like why? I feel like it's that that one step. Yeah. And it might seem like a little drop in the bucket. But I think when you if you were to end that pipeline, then first of all, that's going to factor into the whole misinformation thing, right? Because Enbridge, the company that's building the pipeline, is out here saying it's like totally safe, blah, 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 blah. It's not. Research proves it. it's not. So 
you already have the government acting to combat misinformation, right? You have the government acting to stand up against a major corporation, okay? And then it also becomes an international relations issue because that oil is coming from the um, Alberta tar sands up in Canada, which Justin Trudeau has authorized drilling in. So if the United States is to take a stand and say, no, we won't accept oil from the Alberta tar sands, which are one of the largest CO2 and methane producers like in the world, I think, I could be wrong. Somebody fact check me on that or don't. Um, then you've got the U.S. setting a precedent for where we're going in terms of climate change. And we're no longer talking about, you know, electric cars that are just going to create energy or just going to create pollution elsewhere. We're not talking about how people need to brush their teeth for less time because that 15 seconds of water is going to make a difference. We're actually we're taking a small step that not only has discernible consequences, but is setting a larger precedent. So I'm currently on the Center for American Progress, which I believe is run, it's like Hillary Clinton and Neera Tandon, our Center for American Progress. I may be wrong, but there are still, in the 117th Congress, there are 139 elected officials who refuse to acknowledge the scientific evidence of human-caused climate change. We don't need people to acknowledge it. I don't care if people acknowledge it. If we're taking those steps, you're stopping the pipeline. Because here's the thing. The pipeline's a bad economic choice as it is. The Minnesota Department of Commerce is against it. And yet they're building it anyway. So we know it's not good for the economy. So why are we doing it? We don't have to make it about climate change. Like, Is that what it's about at the end? Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's like a reverse dog whistle almost. I, but I don't see it as being about climate change. It's about these oil and gas companies funding these politicians to continue to lie and lie and lie. But we can't stop that. Democracy dollars, Emily, we talked about this. Are you think $100 in everybody's pocket. What's going to We got a lot of people What is going to stop Americans from using that money for something else? You know, if say say you're like you're a single parent working a minimum wage job, you're not living in Minnesota cuz it's I'm sorry, it's cheap here. Um, you're living on one of the coasts, right? single parent, working a minimum wage job, trying to support your children, and the U.S. government says, I'm going to give you $100, okay, but you have to donate it to a politician. You, we could make that happen, Emily. We already do it in Minnesota. You have $50 that you can give to any state. What? In Minnesota, you can you give do? $50. Wait, I vote here. Yeah, we don't do a good job. And so it's a little bit complex. People can look into it, but you the the politicians have to like opt into it and then they have to follow certain rules on like only accepting a certain amount of money from people. But yeah, you $50, you're able to be refunded. I think it's technically how it works in Minnesota. Yeah. So you pay the $50 and then you send it, you send whatever the receipt and then you get refunded the $50. Oh my God. You learn something every day. But this so is really cool. I, I, we're, we're staying really long on this and I want to hear your next thing. <laughs> I want to hear your next policy item. Oh, okay. Okay. Oh man. I forgot I had to. Okay. So pipeline, um, universal pre-K because it's been shown that, you know, you, you give kids universal pre-K and they're more likely to graduate high school, more likely to graduate high school. You're less likely to be incarcerated. So you're starting to break a whole system there. Um, if you can't tell, I'm also about the systems, but in a very different way. And um, I'm going to stop you there because actually... See, I didn't write these down, so there's no way you'll believe me. But universal pre-K was one of my three. No, I believe you. You were like, oh, my parents are educators, et cetera, et cetera. 
Well, and I'm not going to steal your thing because this is your time to talk. Maybe this can be both of our time to talk since it's also <laughs> in mine. But I work for Parks and Rec, and I've worked there for six years, and I do like K to four soccer. I've and, never held a job for six years. And K to two kinder ball. And I'd, last night, uh, we're recording this on Friday, so Thursday night, I did four and five year old T ball. And I mean, we can talk about how some of them uh, can hit the ball just fine, and some of them swing and miss six times in a row. But I would be that kid. But there are just gaps relative to how well people can listen and their social abilities. And that's tied to whether they went to preschool or not. And yeah. these gaps, I mean, I don't have it right in front of me, but a lot of your success or your failures in academics and in your life are determined by the time you're seven. And if you have great education up until you're seven, you have a good chance of succeeding. If you don't, then you don't have a good chance of succeeding. And we can talk about all the ways that you can bolster K-12 education, but the bottom line is when people from a certain income point and up are all going to pre-K, you're just leaving the people at the bottom behind. And the best way to kind of lower the gap between the haves and the haves nots is to start public education earlier. Yeah, I so I looked at some stats. Um, this is from some government entity. Um, and it says that children who attend uh, pre-K are less likely to be held back a grade, less likely to need special education, more likely to graduate high school, less likely to be involved in crime and delinquency, earn more as adults, and are less likely to become dependent on welfare. Um, so that's all. that's all pretty awesome. I think my third policy would be Oh man. Um I I I think for my third policy it would either be something having to do with voting rights or um with abortion. And I don't know which, and it's hard because both are like very heavily influenced by the courts. Um but I think the freedom to choose and obviously the ability to vote are things that are pretty crucial to our democracy. Um, either that or just pass the Green New Deal. All of it. <laughs> All right. Well, if you're going to talk about climate, I think the Green New Deal would be a good place to start. It's also a good economic move, the Green New Deal. Yeah. yeah or some fair. aspects of it. But Yeah, if you can't tell I'm not that economically focused. I'd kind of like think about that later. But so... My first one is Medicare for All, and I already talked about that enough in my monologue, so I don't think we need to talk about that more. My second was Universal Pre-K, which we already talked about. So my last one, which I wrote a column on, and I've alluded to a few times. I know I haven't alluded to it today. Ranked choice voting. Oh, I thought you were going to say weed. No, <laughs> not, not weed. Weed would not be that high on my list. But, I mean, legalizing marijuana is already kind of happening yeah. is the thing. But ranked choice voting, ranked choice voting, one. and the thing is, right now our politics have kind of turned. I've referenced this already, I think. But the binary choice that you either get Biden or you get Trump. We got rid and, of the gender binary and brought back the political one. And you can, you can, you can vote for you know Howie Hawkins or Joe Jorgensen if you want, but you might as well just not show up because yeah. they're not going to win. And 
the thing is, if we switch to a ranked choice voting system, we could actually get candidates that represent what the majority of Americans want. I know that sounds radical, but my thing is, I mean, no matter where you sit, I try to call balls and strikes, so you might not like some of the things I'm going to say, but there are more Dude, types the of sports. <laughs> the, there are more types. I'm going to say the balls and strikes one a lot, Emily. So you better get used to it. Fine. There are more types of Americans than people who are economically left and want a large social net and people who um, are pro-choice and anti-gun and that type of thing. Who in our politics are currently representing Medicare for all, they're pro-gun, and they're pro-choice? Or they're pro- Possibly Suzanne She's not pro-Medicare for all. Oh, yeah. You know what? That's fair. Maybe not publicly. Or who's pro-Medicare for all, pro-life, and doesn't really care about guns. Or you got to think about all these things, and it's not really this binary choice that we've created it to be. And it's kind of turned into you pick the side, and you're either for these sets of things or you're for these sets of things. And it's turned into this society where everyone is not truly represented and that's part of the reason why I think that you can't get everyone to show up for an election because they're like, you know what? I don't care if this old white guy wins or this old white guy wins because I don't really like either of them that much. So, yeah. I mean, it was one of my first columns at the Daily was on ranked choice voting and how important I think it is. But, I mean, it's not like it's that complex of a switch. And one of the main reasons I think it doesn't happen, I don't know what you think, one of the main reasons it doesn't happen is because that might not be great for the money maker that is the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. So I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I'm actually looking at Collins's voting record right now, and she doesn't explicitly support Medicare for all, but she actually has a somewhat positive record when it comes to public health. Um, so there is that. But no, I definitely agree that ranked choice voting is... You know, it's the place to be right now. It's what New York is doing for their mayoral election. Um, and I think the really interesting thing with that, too, is, you know how in, like, presidential debates, um, they often ask, like, in the primaries, they'll be like, if you, like, who will you be voting for? Like, who would you vote for? With this, they're able to say, like, who would be your second choice? Which means that, number one, we're not making the politicians bullshit and say that they wouldn't vote for themselves. Um, and quite frankly, you wouldn't be running if you wouldn't vote for yourself. But we're also, it, like, reinforces the fact that people are able to, you know, actually make choices and, and have a say and have these politicians give their very honest opinions on their other candidates, which, personally, I like, um, mainly because, like, none of them picked Andrew Yang as their second choice. That's all for today. Thank you so much for tuning in to the first episode of The Daily Discourse with Zach and Emily. I hope you enjoyed listening to us bicker about politics as much as we enjoyed bickering about politics. I mean, I enjoyed it. I don't know if Zach did. Um, but, yeah, hope you will tune in for our following episodes. Yeah, I enjoyed it a little bit. Sometimes you sometimes you made me a little bit mad with your making fun of my sports analogies and whatnot. <laughs> but I'm just over here trying to call balls and strikes. But if you enjoyed... You sounded so Minnesotan there. I, I am indeed from Minnesota. Um, so this is a podcast that I think is important to both of us. And 
it's so important to me that I'm actually currently wearing khakis, which is something that I don't often do. And so I think politics are important regardless of whether they're always interesting or not. So we hope to continue to have some important discussions that at times will be interesting, at times maybe not. But hopefully our thrilling personalities will be enough for you to come back for more um, episodes of The Daily Discourse with Zach and Emily. See you next time.